morning, everybody. This is Corey Warden, and you're listening to the AOHP Caring for Healthcare Professionals podcast. So today we got a great episode. We got Sean Galloway, who is a just a marquee safety speaker and writer. He's done a lot of work with all kinds of Fortune 500 companies all over the world, and he's also worked with a lot of healthcare organizations. So he's got a lot of great perspectives, a lot of great input, and a lot of great experiences to talk about. So with that being said, we're going to go ahead and get right into it. So here's Sean. So, Sean, if you would, um, I don't want to speak for you. If you want to give everybody just a bit about yourself, uh, your career, kind of where you came from, where you're going, all that good stuff. We appreciate it. Hey, Corey. Happy to be on here. Yeah. So uh, currently I serve as the president and chief operating officer of ProAct Safety. Uh, my business partner, we announced that recently, Terry Mathis, who founded our company in 1993, will be retiring in a couple of weeks at the end of this month. Uh, so sad to see him go, but he's also been a fantastic pioneer in the industry. So a lot of big, big boots to fill, if you will. Uh, I guess I started, you know, like you had a military background and after university, I worked for an engineering firm in England. Fleur Daniel, now Fleur, found out what I was doing over there and wanted to get into this particular engineering approach and recruited me made me one of those offers you couldn't refuse type of thing and came back to Houston and worked in their Sugarland office, was involved in specialty process engineering for several years until they made me an offer I could refuse. And that was, they were consolidating their group that they had at the 5,000 person campus, but there's only a handful of us in the Sugarland, Texas office. They wanted us to move to, to their uh, group's headquarters at the time in California and wasn't ready to make that move. I had gotten heavily involved in process safety because we were working for a lot of Fleur's clients, which were in the petrochem and specialty chemical industries, got were heavily involved in process safety. Then that took me into several years in process safety consulting. And in 2005, Terry Mathis recruited me to join ProAct Safety and oversee the business efforts and consulting arm. We had a piece of software at the time uh, when I became partner and president of the company in 2009. We ended up divesting that software piece and focused exclusively on what we do, which is strategy, culture, leadership, and, and engagement. And since 2005, I've been privileged to work with every possible industry in 30 some odd countries. Uh, even throughout all of this crazy time we're in right now, still travel almost weekly out there working with our, our clients and trying to make a difference in the world. So I'm happy to be here with you today, Corey. Oh, that's great. Yeah, we sure appreciate it. I know that you've, uh, y'all, y'all over at ProAct, y'all have certainly worked with a, a litany of, of uh, big names and Fortune 500s and all different kinds of people. So um, within that, have y'all had any, any particular experiences with, with healthcare organizations, any hospitals or systems? Oh, absolutely. The one of the largest and premier healthcare systems and research facility based in our nation's capital had the opportunity to work with them as a consultant for several years. And of course, across several hospital systems there. Um, I remember one in particular had some interesting experiences where you, you look at the bureaucracy that exists in a lot of organizations, which creates challenges of getting change to occur. I remember one in particular highly paid leaders spent six months trying to determine the appropriate flavor of jello to put throughout the hospitals i thought that was, that was an interesting insight one particular hospital i worked with also 
the kind of the, the, the sad joke, what reality was if we could just remove the wheels on the bottom of the chairs, we would reduce a tremendous amount of injuries. That was one of the things that was, you know, contributory to a lot of stuff. Uh, one very large enterprise I worked with, it was a really interesting career and, and it got me really thinking differently with a lot of our clients. Most companies try to do a lot around safety communication. I'm sure you would agree with me that that's, that's a challenge in a lot of organizations is to have conversations, not just send a bunch of signals, make sure those conversations are value added and the messages are received and understood and are retained with individuals. This particular group, this interesting experience with them, they started questioning the efficacy of all of their safety communication. You know, is it really accomplishing what it's meant to accomplish? Is it creating value? And this particular group, you know, they generate their own power, they maintain their own facilities, they treat the rarest diseases, and they house some of the most dangerous biological weapons in the world. There's so a lot of different challenges across this particular organization. And they've done more communication than I'd seen in a lot of instances, tailgates, tailboards, shift huddles, you name it. They had every possible process you could think of to try to send and receive information throughout the organization. And of course, training being a part of that. But they started questioning, you know, how much of this is really creating value for us? So they went to, this is an interesting project, they went to each one of the process area owners. So let's say lockout, tagout, for example, but they went to each one of their major program processes and they went to each one of these leaders and said, you need to be concise. What are the three most important things somebody should know as a result of all of this communication and training we're doing? Now, I'm going to pause here. If you go back to, I believe it was 1954, James Kirkpatrick said the way we measure training effectiveness is number one, did people appreciate it? So the smiley sheet session evaluation, which not a lot of ROI for organizations in that. But number two, did they learn anything? So that's like the basic value. So a lot of us would do pre and post types of quizzes and everything, but did they learn anything? And number three, did it change behavior? And number four, did that contribute to improvement in business results? So they went to each one of these owners and said, what are the three most important things someone should know as a result of all these things that we've done? So it ended up about a 90 questionnaire. It took them a while to get a statistical sample across the organization. And of course, at the end of it, no surprise, most people didn't know the most important things, regardless of the amount of times it had been communicated. So what made it interesting about this project is their focus then became not how do we communicate more, but how do we make our messages sticky? So that's also led us, aside from this being called the safety IQ, which has then been, then been kind of delineated into, you know, what's the employee safety IQ? What's the leadership safety IQ? Because that's so much more value added answering the question, do our people know the things we need them to know? And if we have great results, but you test people and see, wow, we have fantastic performance, but our people don't know the basic things. They don't know what our focus is. They don't know what the most likely types of injury or the most risks that they're exposed to, then I would question how sustainable our great performance is. But that was an interesting project. And But that being said, I find that still exists. I'm sure you do as well. It's making sure our communication has a sender and a receiver. Both have turned on and tuned into the message, and we're getting some value from that. 
and and I'll I'll end with if you think about any safety meeting that we have, any communication, and let's say we talk about the four most important things. A month later, you poll people, and most can only remember two. You had a 50% return on safety attention. That's what we call it, ROSA, return on safety attention. And that's a better way to start keeping your finger on the pulse. Wow, we're communicating, we're training, but do our people remember and do they know? If they don't, then I would challenge you know, how great our results are. But that being said, again, it doesn't just exist in this particular sector of industry. I, I find those opportunities exist almost everywhere is improving the, the value from communication and training. Yeah, those are great points. You know, it's interesting how you bring that up because I know at least in my experience, which uh, I think, actually I lost count now, but I think it's probably five or six organizations over 17 years, you know, including the, including the U.S. Air Force. That's one of the biggest things I've always looked at is it's one thing to talk a lot, you know, to constantly bring it up, but it's a whole other thing to be saying something that's important that people are going to listen to and they're going to take away from it. Um, so for example, you know, there's that, that old cliche of people say, well, we had a safety meeting. We told everybody to be careful, but they didn't tell them what the hazard was or how to be careful. Um, then I've seen other organizations where, you know, they'll be very proud of their training numbers and they'll say, well, we completed training with hundred percent of our employees about tuberculosis. And we'll say, okay, well, that, that's fantastic. But can we see the, the training module? You know, what's the, what's the content and what's the evaluation, et cetera. And when we look at it, it turns out that there's about 15 slides that explain tuberculosis and the characteristics of tuberculosis and why it's hazardous and why you shouldn't want to be exposed to it. But it never says how to prevent an exposure. So it never talks about <laughs> respirators or quarantine or isolation or any of those things. And um, that creates that that conversation of, well, if we want to if we want to be value added here, then we have to get proactive. But it's not enough just to talk about it. Um, so that, yeah, great comments. So with that, I know you talked about some of the things that are kind of kind of unique there. I, I, I always like the story about the organization spending six months to determine Jello flavors. Um, <laughs> what are what are some of the some of the good things that you've seen? What are some of the, some of the common traits that you you know you look at it and you go, wow, this organization is they're they're going to be good. You know, what are some of the things you've seen? Well, I'll answer that by building off of what you just said about we've had a meeting. We told people to be safe. If you land in Newark, New Jersey, and I was in Newark last week, I was up and down the East Coast, Delaware, up into New York last week. And if you land at Newark Airport, head south on the turnpike. If you're doing the speed limit, almost 10 minutes down on the right hand side, there's a Sitco tank farm. And on the side of that tank farm, it says, Drive safely. Now, for those of you that are listening in on this and you have kids that are driving age like I do, hopefully you didn't put them behind the vehicle for the first time and say, drive safely, waving them off. No, you gave them feedback when they were, you taught them how to drive, you gave them feedback when they were, you gave them feedback when they weren't. They were coaching for what safe really means. That's what you do as a, as a parent. And I think that's the problem that we fall into, which I'm going to spin this and say, you know, what do they do well? Is they companies do what I call having a focus in versus just a focus on safety. We talk about safety. That's the focus on trying to move the conversation to creating safety as a priority to then eventually it becomes a value. 
you know, the, yes, that's important, but that's the focus on the topic. That's getting people to appreciate the topic, to be knowledgeable about the topic. The next step is to develop a focus in safety. So to your point, they know precisely what to do to keep themselves safe. Terry and I, in one of our books said, simply put, safety is three things, knowing the risks, knowing what precautions to take to control those risks, and then regularly taking those precautions. So, you know, we've built off that model to some, some other ways as well, but you have a focus in, not just a focus on. With all of that, to me, there's seven things that I consistently see when I'm brought in to organizations to help them figure out where they're at, help them figure out what that plan is to pursue excellence in HSE. One of the first things that I see in organizations that are on the right path is they have a strategy. They have a real plan over the next three to five to sometimes 10 years that has clearly defined what excellence looks like, not just in results, but in the performance that explains the results. They have good data, not opinions that tells them where they are. And they have a handful of strategic priorities to close that gap with what I'll talk about later, a, a better scorecard to measure those choices and are we progressing and creating value? So they have a strategy and that strategy has to answer the question, what are the most important things we need to be focusing on? And also are the things we're focusing on creating the perception of value with our customers and consumers of all our safety programs, the contractors, the employees, the visitors, the leadership. So they have a strategy. The next one I would say would be they, they have real leadership engagement. Now, engagement is buy-in, participation, and ownership that, in, in that order. You got to have things people buy into. They have to have a way to participate. Leaders have to see themselves as actors in the strategy. That means they need to know their role, their responsibilities, the part that they play. And that strategy can't be delegated to you and me, the safety people. It has to be created by the business leaders with support and advice from the HSE or EHS leadership. So they have real leadership engagement. They're doing their part. Then they have effective communication and they're constantly testing the value from that communication. They have trust. They have trust. There's no perceived hidden agenda. There's trust between the levels. There's trust between the departments. And with that, trust comes through transparency and good communication. The fifth thing would be the employee engagement. Same thing, buy-in, participation, ownership. When I first met Terry, he advised me on something Dr. W. Edward Stimming said, one of his principles that I think is fantastic. People support what they help to create. So when I see success, when I see excellence, employees aren't just bought into what's happening in safety. They're actively participating. They're leading gimbal walks. They're leading safety walks. They're out there inspecting things. They're actively stopping the job when necessary. They're actively providing positive reinforcement, but they're playing a role in figuring out how to customize the plans or the protocols or procedures to the operational reality. And they're out there involved in the execution of it. Uh, the, the last two would be that I constantly see is an effective balance scorecard. Uh, as Terry has said many times, the world's three-dimensional. Our safety measurements need to be three-dimensional. We can't just measure activities and results. We have to measure the interface between the two. Like with communication, we sent all these signals out. We had X amount of warm bodies in this training. Well, 
Did it change what they know? Did it change what they are actually doing? Are we measuring the value derived from it? So you have to have a balanced scorecard. And then the last is I see an active culture that isn't satisfied with status quo. CentOS, when I first had the opportunity to work with them, they asked me to read a couple of books that were written by the son of the founder. And what impressed me about them is they have a value that permeates throughout their organization called positive discontent. And what that means is we celebrate our success and we know we can always be better. Shell uses the term chronic unease. Like, you know, when, I'm, when, I, when I say keeping our head on a swivel, situational awareness, they're aware and maintain that sense of vulnerability that we may be great in our performance, but it could happen at any moment. So they're never invulnerable. They're always maintaining that sense of vulnerability. So to me, it's when I actively see a culture that celebrates its success, that knows precisely what's leading to that success, but also is actively looking for better practices, better ways that we can do things. Because finally, what I'll say in, in any company that I work with, you could spend a half an hour talking about the practices that used to be viewed as acceptable five years ago that are viewed as unacceptable today because we realize progress begins by thinking differently. So that all the way from having an effective strategy that others participate in the creation of execution, we're communicating, we're building trust. We have scorecards that measure not just what we're doing in our results, but the interface between the two. And we have a culture that's again, never satisfied with good. We're always pursuing a better. Uh, outstanding. Yeah, that, that's fantastic input. You know, it, I like how you how you articulate that. It's, that's some of the things I've also noticed uh, throughout, you know, throughout my experiences is that when when we seek to engage people, the more we include them in these processes, they feel that sense of ownership and empowerment. So, like you said, you know, if you have somebody and we just simply speak at them, you know, if we we tell them, okay, here's this hazard, we want you to do this, you know go to it you know you have that kind of command and control um very um very um i don't want to say dictatorial but directive leadership you know very transactional then that's one thing and there, there's a time and a place for that you know like you, like you said military context or whatnot you know ics type things but on this when you get into transformation you know servant leadership if you're asking people for their input and then you say okay well, we appreciate the input now let's talk about what, what's your opinion on the best way that we can implement this? And then we go to validate that and let's say, okay, so let's let's put the hazard control in place. And now we're going to do these, like you said, these observations with the inspections and we need to see what's working and what's not working. Then they get that sense of ownership. And honestly, you know, if people dedicate 10, 20, 30 minutes a week to working on these things, then you get that level of input from each person. Now we're, now we're developing not only the, the trust and the ownership and the buy-in, but we're developing a, a great deal of data from you know, different perspectives and different different uh, subject matter expertise and all these different things. So I, I, that's great. I like how you put that. Um, so with that being said, so we talked about the organizations and we talked about some of the good, some of the I don't want to say bad, but some of the uh, eccentric, some, you know, some of the different things. Um, what, what are some of the traits you've seen with the with the safety leadership? I know this probably ties to the previous question, but so what are some of the good things you've seen about the safety leaders there? 
we have a model that we teach with organizations because when we're assessing where an organization's at, one of the models that we use, let me digress for a second, is a safety maturity index. And we're looking at, and there's several ways that we look at kind of where the organization's at today, but it also tells them what to focus on to advance in strategy, in leadership, in culture competence, in how the EHS or HSC profession is professional is viewed. So I'm gonna answer it this way first. And it's what we call being a grunt to a guardian to a guru. So a grunt is somebody that, and it's an important task, manages all the administrative side of EHS. A guardian is somebody who's gotten beyond that. And again, some people, that they want the administrative. I know a lot of fantastic data folks that, that that's, they thrive when they're sitting behind the laptop, like data scientists really diving into things. And there's a very value added place for that, especially the world's going towards kind of industry 4.0 and everything. But we have to move, move the perception of the EHS professional within organizations within the industry, then to that guardian phase. And that's when they're starting to develop these programs involving, to your point, Corey, of involving the workforce in the customization of these programs, but then guarding it to make sure it's not going in the wrong direction while getting operational leadership or getting administrative leadership involved in truly owning to where eventually they become the guru and they're the subject matter expert. But beyond that, they're like general counsel in an organization. They're making sure that they're apprised of what's coming, new changes, ensuring that business decisions don't conflict with the EHS strategy and take things in the wrong direction. They're advising in merger and acquisition due diligence to make sure we're thinking about things correctly. But to me, it's it's when I see that that safety professional owns their role, they see their value, but the ones that I feel are most successful are the ones that learn the language of the business leaders that they're supporting. Every, every industry, every type of task, nurse, my mother's an RN, you know, they have their own jargon, their own language. We safety professionals, Terry and I joke that there's just not enough acronyms in safety. So we stay up late at night developing new ones to confuse the world. So there's all these acronyms, but if we're not talking the language of the leaders that are ultimately making these decisions were viewed as somebody who gets delegated to. With the pandemic happening over the last year and a half or so where we're at now, it's kind of forced some of these leaders to be present at a quote unquote seat at the table because for the first time in a lot of these organizations, keeping our doors open, you know, being perceived as a safe place to go to for customers or clients or patients is a hypercritical, hypercritical aspect to consider. So now all of a sudden, some of these EHS leaders that were delegated to are now part of business continuity discussions and planning. Those are the ones, and again, every, the grunts, the guardians, the gurus all have their place, but when the safety professional truly owns who they are and they make sure back to strategically focus, the things they're focusing on are the right things, but the things that we're doing create the perception that we're focusing on the right things. And I'll, I'll tell you an example that I've, I've told several times. So if some of the audience has heard me speak, I might've mentioned this one. 
but there was a great safety professional that I worked with and he had a coal-fired power plant in the Northeast. And he wanted me to come in and take a look at the things that they were doing, make sure that, you know, doing the right things. I looked at all their injuries incidents over the last four years prior to showing up and also asked, what are the, what, what's the focus today? What are you deploying? What are you focusing on? So having already known what the focus needs to be by looking at the events that are happening, one of the questions I asked the employees that I interviewed was what safety focusing on today? What are they giving the most attention to? And I have led hundreds of hundreds of types of these assessments and culture and strategy assessments. I've never had the degree of alignment that I had that day when all the employees I asked that question to told me the same two things, steel toe and housekeeping. They were rolling out a steel toe program and housekeeping. Now, the problem with that is had they been perfect at steel toe compliance, had they had pristine housekeeping, cleanliness, organization, or everything, it would have had an 8% impact in their incidents over the last four years. So while that safety professional was busy working on the stuff in safety, he wasn't focusing on the right things. And that's one of the things that I think is so critical back to that data. So we're not just using our opinions because those in leadership positions get there based on having a low opinion of opinions and having a much more trust and reliance on data. And the more data that we can gather, especially the more leading indicator data, so you don't have an environment where somebody has to volunteer to get hurt on something to get it fixed. You have better data and appreciation, trust in that safety or EHS professional, and they're viewed as a business partner, not just a technical resource in the organization. So that means we need to learn the language of the businesses that we support. You and I both, you know, we're, we're constantly professionally developing ourselves, but the role that I play working a lot with the chief executive teams of companies, I read the same stuff that they read. I go to the same things that they go to because those are the individuals ultimately I need to try to influence to help them find better ways to do things. And that's the same role that I see EHS leaders in highly successful, highly reliable organizations. They are upping their game and they realize that their influence is going to be limited on the perceived value that they're bringing to the table. So they have to show value. What drives me, and I'll, I'll conclude with this piece, when I turned 16, I had my first tax paying job, I like to say, because I've been employed doing something since I was 10. My other world's changed, you don't see that much anymore. But my dad told me something that kind of drove my work ethic. And he said, Sean, no one will ever owe you a job. You have to show and demonstrate new value every day. And that's what we EHS leaders have to do. We have to make sure what we're doing is of value, constantly moving the needle, but more importantly, within the culture, we're creating the perception of value. And that's a lot harder. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's really important. You know, I like how you talk about perception there. That's something I've been I've been writing a lot about lately is not only the perception that the the safety professional is value added and like you said you know deserves to be involved in those those critical discussions and those strategic planning and even operational and tactical planning um but when we're at that at that table and doing those analyses the the perception and the subjectivity of what the risk level is so for example the 
the reason I, I've written a lot about this is because with the COVID-19 pandemic, it's been a, a really interesting thing because you have the full spectrum where you have organizations and, and politicians and senior leaders, you know, all, all across the gamut. You have people who have, who have looked at it and they said, wow, this is a very high risk. You know, there's a, there's a lot of people who have, who have passed away because of this virus. It's in every community. The hospitals are in danger of being overrun. And so we're going to implement the full hierarchy of controls. You know, we're either going to do telecommuting and we're going to do physical separation and barriers and we're going to put MERV 13 filters in and we're going to do social distancing and source control with face covers and, you know, the full, the full spectrum. And then on the other side of the scope, you have people that looked at it and they said, for, for whatever reason, you know, I don't know if it was because of a political influence or, or they just have a particular life experience where they're not necessarily uh, daunted by viruses and, and disease exposures. But you had, a, you had organizations and you had people that said, you know, we're not concerned. We, we think this is nothing more than yearly influenza. So we're going to just continue as normal. And in the absence of a OSHA regulation, which just literally came out a couple of days ago for the health care organization with the emergency temporary standard, then it, it really became subjective to that particular risk perception as to what the organization was going to do about COVID-19. Um, have you seen any kind of trends about that in terms of uh, subjectivity and the way people look at hazards and determine risk levels? Yeah, there's so when we look at what influences risk, you know, on a broader scale, my first go to answer is a model that we have that says there's really four primary drivers of what, what would encourage somebody or influence them to take a risk. And one is their perception about the risk and perception is really twofold. One is I don't recognize the risk, so I, I'm I don't I'm, I'm that's why I didn't do that because I but I guess okay yeah if you tell me that's risky yeah, I guess I can see how that's risky. The other is how we've kind of defined the absence of negative results therefore must indicate the presence of success, which we all know is absolutely illogical. But so it's perception that they really just don't see it. They don't see something as as risky. But the other is that I don't see it as risky because I've done it before and it's not going to happen to me type of thing. And then the other is habit. Trying to change habits, as we all know, is 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 very difficult. The whole ABC antecedent behavior consequence model and all that. But then there's also outside of the individual obstacles and barriers, things that make it difficult or impossible. But I think without getting into the whole, you know, political issue behind all this, I think it's just been ultimately a, you know, a big failure and change. And and I'm waiting for someday in the Harvard Business Review to have this be one of those case studies that management leaders are debating about how change was led. I'm a fan of John Cotter's work out of Harvard. And he said that there's really three things that trigger resistance to change. And before I go into that, what's interesting is that cultures and individuals don't just naturally resist change. And I know that's different than everyone, what everyone's experienced, because we've all dealt in some fashion of resistance to change. But the reality is people don't just naturally resist the change. They resist the force of the change because people see change. They, they change when they see the value in the change. They see how it benefits them. It answers the what's in it for me question. So it's the force of the change and force change is almost always temporary because when the leader and the force go away, then so does the change. But back to Cotter's research, 
he says that there's three things that do trigger resistance to change. Number one is people don't understand the change, conflicting messages, or they don't understand the why. And that has been a huge issue that I think has led to some of the some of the resistance that you know we tend to what we've seen over the last year and a half. But the other two are they don't like the change and they don't like the person that's bringing the change, which highlights and Dale Carnegie even was quoted to say this in 1919. Never forget when dealing with the human species, we're an emotional species, not a logical species. And I don't think enough attention was given to the emotional natural resistance is going to come when we're communicating conflicting messages. We're not really communicating the why. The why tends to be changing all the time. There's no consistency in protocols. How people are interpreting and then executing on advice has been all over the place. So I, I guess I'm not surprised. And I, you know, I'm glad we're at least getting on for the most part the other end of it. But I think it's going to be interesting to see what some of these protocols are going to remain in place because a lot of the clients I'm working with, they're still going to keep some of the things like temperature testing and and some of the others that. Uh, that they have been able to see value and see value in the long term. But to me, I, I think an interesting conversation to have as we get past all of this is to really diagnose what led to all of this resistance and change and and how much of the EQ, emotional intelligence that we people paid attention to. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's great input. And and. I like how you put that as well with the emotional intelligence, you know, and being able to being able to look at the the different dynamics and the different dimensions involved in these situations. Because um, ultimately, when we're talking about these things, especially with people's health, um, it's interesting because you know we got safety, health, environmental is typically the typically the scope of practice, you know. So safety is, you know, very. Um, very pretty well pretty well versed among you know the 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 professionals and then you got the environmental where you know it kind of ranges from people that that look at environmental as part of their job versus you know the full-on environmental engineers um and then in the middle you got health and health doesn't doesn't get looked at a lot so this last year has been very interesting where health has become a very very important issue and when it gets to that people take it very personally because if an organization says well, we view the risk as being low, so we're not going to implement these controls. Um, with a with a safety hazard, a lot of times people can say, "Well, but I don't agree with that, but I can take it upon myself to make sure that I'm safe." You know, I'm going to make sure that I don't make contact with the equipment or you know reach the the point of operation or whatnot. But with the things like a infectious disease exposure, people say, "Well, if you're not going to enforce these controls, then other people can now impact my health." And if I show up for work, I'm now at their mercy. So people tend to take it very personally. So it's an interesting thing. And the the, the EQ and the emotional intelligence is a huge part of that. Um, so I, I, I like your feedback there. That's very good. Um, so with all that said, you know, we talked about organizations and hazards and risks and some of the good, some of the indifferent, some of the some of the strange. So with these things that safety professionals can can do to excel, what type of um, if you were giving some advice, what type of professional development or what type of guidance would you give them to to continue improving in terms of safety leadership? Yeah, I, I like what you just what you wrapped up with about highlighting the importance of the age side, because you're right. And a lot of 
instances, it's the industrial health or it's the noise monitoring or it's the dust exposure, silica, all very important. A lot of the companies I'm working with now are focusing on the whole person and mental health being a, a key consideration, a key part of that. And I think that, and I predict that that H side of EHS is going to continue to receive a lot more importance because you and I know a lot of the people that end up in the EHS profession tend to come mostly across when I'm considering all industries from either the environment or the safety side. And H has been kind of an afterthought or we're hiring a consultant for some of the occupational health or industrial health aspects. So I think that's going to be an important driver and involving you know, again, focusing on the whole health, because you look at the generations coming into the workplace today, some of the research I've seen in surveys, they're looking to go to work for companies that are more altruistic and thinking and thinking bigger picture. And what, what are we going to do for the employees? How do we create a great experience for the employees? So I predict a lot more of that. And, and I, think you're on, I think you and I are aligned on that. When I look at advice for the EHS professional, when my oldest daughter was trying to figure out what she wanted to do for a living when she was 16. She had a conversation with my father and I guess I'm making him out to be a, sound like a sage here, but he had some great advice for her as well. And he said, spend more time determining what you don't want to do. Cause by the time you're an older adult, you'll probably be spending your time working in an area or on something that hasn't even been invented yet. And I thought that was an interesting perspective. And it goes to me of not to be cliche or anything, but find your passion. What are the things that really drive you? What are the things that you're really interested in, in the E, H and S space? But when I do, I do a lot of coaching, you know, I do coaching for as a trusted advisor, every other week conversations, touch points with executives, all the way EHS professionals. And when I when I think of that question, to me, I, I kind of go towards my methodology when I look at advice of trying to help that EHS leader be the best that they can be. And the first question I ask them in this coaching session is, what kind of EHS leader do you want to be? I think that's an open-ended question. And I try not to say, do you want to be more on the E or the H or the S side? Do you want to be more of a grunt or guardian guru? What kind of leader do you want to be? That's an open-ended question that prompts you to think critically about that. The second question I asked then is, okay, a year from now, or if I'm doing a broader coaching, you know, five years from now, if you were to invest in your professional development, what would you need to invest in, in order to become that kind of leader? Then the next is, okay, if you are actively investing in professional development, how would you then be perceived by your company leadership? How would you be perceived by your peers? And then how would you be perceived by the employees that you're trying to influence? Because as you mentioned, command and control, we EHS professionals don't have a lot of control. We're, we're much more of what's our sphere of influence in most organizations. So how would you be perceived? And then the next two questions I ask are, okay, what do you see as your most important responsibilities going forward to facilitate improvement and create those perceptions. What do you need to spend time on? And I'm going to come back to that in just a second. And then what do you see as the impact? How would you measure that you're successful with that? There's another article that I wrote that I usually give people that I'm coaching once I help them 
walk through or talk through that. What do you want to be? What do you need to do to to arrive at that? What are you passionate about? And then how would you be perceived if you're truly working towards what you're passionate on? And then what do you need to do is there's a, a, a four list of four questions that I encourage people that I'm coaching on those EHS leaders, if you will, to continue to be better. Number one is they drive home every day at the end of their day. Am I doing what I committed to doing? That's why I asked if what do you need to do to create those perceptions of those that you're influencing? What do you need to do to get you closer to the type of VHS leader you really want to be and be passionate about? So the self-accountability, the put your oxygen mask on first before helping each other. By the way, if you haven't flown much, they've, they've added and changed that now. Now the message on the airline is take your mask off before putting your oxygen mask on. So I think they have to communicate to the lowest common denominator there. But Number one, am I doing what I committed to do? Because I don't think you should hold other people accountable until you're really holding yourself accountable first. And number two, is it making a difference? That's why I ask the people, you know, what's the perception? What's how would you monitor that what you're doing is getting you closer to what you want? Making those perceptions exist with others. Number three is how can I be more efficient at it? So maybe it's I need to do it more. Maybe it's I need to do it less. And then number four, how do I improve my leadership influence because leadership is all about influence. It's not about managing things. It's not about controlling behavior. It's about influencing the thinking that regardless of what we think is excellence and safety today, it's going to be antiquated five years from now, 10 years from now. There's always going to be a better way. But I think that the people that I love to work with that are most successful, not just the strategic thinkers or the ones that are, you know, really concentrating on what they want to do. It's the people that are really passionate about it and they're passionate about the impact that they're trying to make. And they're not just passionate about the impact they're trying to make with the companies they work within. They're trying to make that impact on the family members of those people that they work with. Cause I know here in, much of the developed world, you're significantly more likely to get injured outside of work than you are to get injured at work or, or in work. So it's the people that realize that and what drives them is more altruistic thinking than, hey, we want to reduce our incident rates. So find your passion. Definitely, definitely. That, that, yeah, it's great input. I, I like that a lot. It, it's interesting you see that too, just looking at it reflecting on on my myself and, and my career if you if you will call it that my you know quote unquote career is um when you say think about the things that you don't want to do um i think about when i was when i was growing up and going into college i had no idea i um i i was always a musician growing up and i kind of realized that i wasn't going to be able to make a living doing that um so that I just accepted that, you know, I said, okay, well, I need to figure out how I'm going to pay bills. And so I thought, well, I, I know I want to help people, but I also know that my, something about myself, as much as I want to help people, I would not be a good medic. I wouldn't be a good EMS or, you know, paramedic. So I, um, when I went into the Air Force, I didn't, I didn't sign up to be an EMS or a, um, definitely, definitely not, um, rescue for a number of reasons I I'm you know I I wouldn't be able to carry people and that sort of thing but um so knowing that I I ended up going into emergency management where I was able to help people 
and work alongside people like like EMS and fire protection and law enforcement and all the people that we work with every day. And uh, I always telling somebody just the other day, it's interesting going into safety because either if you know that something is not for you or if you know that, that you can't decide and you say, well, I want to help you, but I'm not sure which of these particular uh, lanes I want to go down, whether it's uh, EMS, fire protection, law enforcement, uh, or, or emergency management or whatnot. If you go into safety, you get to work with all of them. You know, if you if you're able to, that's right. You're able to become become good at it, and you know, if you're able to to get with the right people, find the right mentorship and the right coaching and whatnot, then ultimately you find yourself in a in a ICS as a safety officer, and you get to work with everybody. So it works out really well. Um, and then the other thing you said is find things that you do like and you want to be involved in. Uh, my wife always makes fun of me to no end because, like I was saying, is when I look at things like like pararescue or um, special operations and whatnot, I always go, man, I would, I think that is the coolest thing on earth, but I also know that I can't fireman carry a 300 pound man. You know what I mean? I just, I'm not built for that, um, physiologically. So I know that the recruiters were not looking at me going, this guy's going to be a, a ranger, you know, it wasn't going to happen. So I went into emergency management where I was able to do well, um, within the feasibility of my, my particular bone structure. But, um, my wife always makes fun of me because I always find I, I read a lot about counterinsurgency and all these things that go on in, in Afghanistan and Iraq and Vietnam and World War II and whatnot. And I always find a way to somehow synthesize that into what we do with safety management. And so my wife's always making fun of me and she's like, oh, there, there goes Corey again, wishing he was a, you know, wishing he was in Delta Force or an astronaut or something. You know, so <laughs> and so you can always. Um, there's a lesson learned from everything. So if you think about what you what you do like, and then you can find a way to translate that into something that you can really do well with. Uh, great, great input. Uh, well, heck, um, I don't want to take up your whole day. I know you're very busy, but we, we sure appreciate you being here. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to add before we before we wrap it up today? I'm just going to support what you just said, Corey, and that is to be your best. I, I like what you said about you know. Key, you may not be able to carry a 300 person carry and a fireman or firefighter carry, but there's other things that you can do really well. And I think that's the same mentality we have to have with ourselves. I, I just, I wasn't built really to play certain types of sports, but there were other sports and other things I did that I, I thrived at. And it would be miserable trying to pursue things that I just didn't have the capabilities. And that's the same thing that I, the advice I give to organizations is a lot of companies want to be have certain characteristics. I mean, we're we're sweet smelling or whatever the characteristics they, they want to have. You have to look at capabilities. What are your capabilities? What are the things that you can do? And that's what we EHS leaders need to take on is, is your advice there is be be great at the things you're interested in, but be great at the things that you're able to do. It's the same thing with organizations. Don't try to emulate another person. Don't try to be like another company. You never will. Be your own best. So I'd just like to support what you said. Yeah, definitely. Be your own best. That's that's a great way to put it for sure. And and safety's a big enough, you know, safety health environmental. There there's enough there's enough landscape there where you know there's room for everybody and all those different personalities and you know ultimately that benefits everybody for sure. That's great. All right. Well, heck, uh, we're going on about an hour. I don't want to take up any more of your time, but we sure appreciate uh, Sean. Thanks for being here. Um, everybody else, thank you for listening. 
Well, we sure appreciate Sean's time today. Uh, great, great perspectives, great experiences, great feedback. So definitely, definitely a lot of good information there. Uh, as always, if you haven't done so, please check out our AOHP podcast. We're over at anchor.fm slash AOHP. And we've got a lot of great episodes there talking about things like needle stick prevention, sharps prevention, um, uh, respiratory protection, uh, ergonomics, all different kinds of topics from great speakers. We have um, Dr. Mitchell on there. We have um, the team over at Akron Children's Hospital on there. We've got people from uh, public sector. We've got all different kinds of people. So definitely check that out. And as always, if anybody's interested in in guesting on a podcast, definitely let us know. We're doing panels on all different kinds of topics. And so we're scheduling those now. We'd love to have you involved. And as always, also, if you're interested in writing, definitely get in touch. Uh, Kim over at the AOHP Journal is always interested in submissions for articles and editorials and all kinds of different um, publications. So with that being said, we appreciate our being here and we'll talk to you real soon.